Hello, good evening. Good to see you all. Give us a wave. Hiya, I'm Peter, uh, pastor here at Destiny uh, in Edinburgh. And if this, is your, if this is your first time with us, I want to add my welcome to Beth's welcome. It's great to have you with us, and we hope you can enjoy. What is it? You, you, like, you like the t-shirt? Okay. <laughs> Yours is nice too, Jean, yeah. <laughs> um, if this is your first time with us, really extend a warm welcome to you. It's great to have you here. Um, who was here this morning? Nobody. <laughs> no, it wasn't a trick question. I, you're too, uh, okay, who was at Gorgie this morning? Okay, okay, maybe half of you, great. It's a, it's a very exciting season as a church. We're, we're looking forward to both Gorgie and Leith continuing to grow, although as we saw this morning, as we can see tonight, we don't know how. <laughs> we're running out of seats. We need another building. I think we'll launch another building fund campaign. That'd be a laugh, wouldn't it? <laughs> Just joking. I also am skin, right? So <laughs> I wouldn't do that yet. Um, certainly not next next couple of months. Ne- next couple of months, we've got to got to build up upper reserves again. <laughs> okay, we've got to pray though. So we we hope in the next uh, certainly next. I was going to say twelve months, but it might not be as long as that. We have to start multiple services in both locations. So a morning in Leith and an evening in Leith, morning in Gorgie, evening in Gorgie, staggered times and so on. So that's, that's where we're up for these things. You know, we've just got to go for these things. We, can't, we cannot let the shoe decide the size of the foot. Uh, so that's the journey we're on. And we'd love to have you with us on the journey here to our desires to make an impact in the city. Okay, um, the other thing to let you know about on Sunday nights, we're going to be changing uh, a couple of things. We're going to be providing supper uh, in, in kind of towards the end of October, Alex is going to start. Alex is a phenomenal chef, uh, and he's going to start preparing kind of suppers for after the evening meeting. And he's got a huge range of awesome concoctions and all sorts of stuff. Um, so it's also a chance at the end of the evening meeting, you don't have to rush off and get some food. You can hang around, enjoy a bit of chit chat, and we'll maybe we'll do some unplugged music and stuff like that. Not from me. Um, and also, I've got a new phone. This is an iPhone. I think this is the Lord's provision. These are amazing, these things. But I'll tell you what I downloaded. You're going to like this. A countdown timer. And this is hopefully going to help your preacher stick to less than an hour and a half. So it's counting down now. I better get going. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a theory. Hopefully it'll work. And uh, <laughs> I doubt it, but it, try um, okay, tonight we're gonna, we've been going through the book of Proverbs. It's a, it's a phenomenal book. And w- the, the reason we like going through books of the Bible here is because it forces you to face certain issues. You know, you, as you're working your way through books of the Bible, they're just issues that arise and you think, I don't want to tackle that, but I've announced that I'm doing a series, so I must. So it forces you to tackle, because a lot of scripture is majorly challenging. And tonight... Um, my title is Criminals and Corruption. So if you came for a Jesus Loves You, Live a Happy Life sermon, sorry, the wrong church tonight, uh, that's next Sunday's message, but tonight we're going to look at criminals and corruption. You know, there are, this world's a dynamic place. It's a dynamic place. It has extremes. One extreme is this world has got great things, it's got beauty. It's got human beings. It's got great diversity. It's got ingenuity. It's got creativity. This world is an awesome display of God's majesty and God's love for people. And it's just a phenomenal place to live in one sense. In the other sense, it is wicked to the core, full of corruption that results in suffering and great evil. Some of you have seen the depths of evil that this world is, is involved with. Others of you, and for all of us, it touches our lives in different ways. So we've got this great extreme. And um, for us to fully appreciate the beauty, we need to do, have a legitimate answer to the corruption. And one day will come, and the Bible teaches, where God will just draw a line. And he will say, enough is enough. It's called judgment day. And the Bible says there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And it won't have the taint of sin Sin will be ultimately dealt with in reality 
and the new heavens and the new earth, how that will look, how that will be, I don't know. Uh, but it, it indicates that all the great things in the world will only be magnified. And as you have lived for God, so you will live on with God for all eternity. Uh, but in the meantime, we're in a world where there is great divide between good and evil, between light and darkness. And while we appreciate the beauty, we also see the darkness and the evil. And we've got to live this tension with God. So tonight we're going to look at some Bible verses that tackle the darkness. Let me first of all start by telling you a story. There were three people and they had died and they arrived at the pearly gates of heaven. And the apostle Peter was there to greet them. And it's a true story. And the apostle Peter said to them, we're really sorry, but heaven is incredibly busy just now. So only people who have died particularly gruesome deaths can get into heaven on this particular day. So what's your stories? So the first guy said, right, <clears throat> you know what's happening? I, was, I, li- I live on the 22nd floor of a high-rise block, and I, I was leaving my, blo- my, my flat that day, and I looked back up. I just, I just happened to look back up, and it was dark, but the, there was a light on in my house, and I saw a silhouette moving around. I figured there was a thief in my house. So I ran up as quick as I could to take out the thief, and I burst the door open, and there was no one anywhere. I looked high and low. I looked everywhere, behind cupboards, behind doors. I couldn't find the thief. I was convinced someone was in my house. And then I got to the edge of my balcony, and there hanging on the edge of my balcony was fingertips. I knew, ah, here he is here. So I started stamping in those fingertips and prizing them off the edge. He wouldn't let go. So I ran into the house. I grabbed a hammer, and I came, and I started whacking his fingertips until eventually he let go, and I watched. And he fell right all the way down, except he landed in a bush and survived. So I thought, so I ran back into the kitchen. I grabbed a fridge freezer. I ran to the edge of the balcony and I dropped the fridge freezer on the dude. And then I got a heart attack because of the shock of everything that happens. And that's why I am here at Pearly Gates. (laughs) Peter said, that was incredible. Okay, you come in. He said to the next guy, so what's your story? He said, okay, I I live on the 23rd floor of a block of flats. I was exercising on my balcony. Then I slipped but thankfully, I managed to grab my neighbor's balcony below. <clears throat> and I thought, man, who's going to help me here? Oh, my neighbor appeared. I was so pleased to see my neighbor, but he started, he was crazy. He started trying to prize my fingers off, and, and then he left, and I thought, oh, amazing. I managed to hang on. Next thing I know, the guy is taking a hammer out on my knuckles. I couldn't hang on any longer, so I thought, I'm, I'm a goner, and I fell all the floors down to the ground, but thank God, I landed in a bush. And as I was coming to, I looked up and, oh no, a fridge freezer takes me out. So here I am. And St. Peter said, this is horrendous, you must come in. And he turned to the third guy and said, well, what's your story? He said, okay, I was robbing a flat. And I saw the guy come, so I jumped in a fridge freezer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're, we're in a world where there's tons of corruption, tons of violence, and that's the world we live in. There was an article released in February 1989 in a newspaper, and it founds in a survey that angry, cynical people die young. Men who score high for hostility uh, on our standard tests are four times more likely to die prematurely than those whose scores are low. Living an angry, brutal life does not benefit you. And yet it's the way that so many, maybe of us, maybe out there, maybe the way we used to be, chose to deal with things and resolve things. Certainly, my past life, I am not glad of. I wasn't the most horrendous criminal. I had run-ins with the police. I did things I regretted. I treated people badly. I was angry. I was aggressive. I would fight if I knew I could win. I was not a nice individual. And this is the way that humankind resolves their conflicts. This is the way that we take matters into our own hands. And this is the world we're living in. The Personnel Journal said that in all of recorded history, only 8% of time has this world seen peace. That out of the 3,530 years of recorded, detailed recorded history, only 286 of those years saw peace. Moreover, in excess of 8,000 peace treaties have been made and broken. Now, some of you were criminals. Some of you have recently been criminals. Some of you are currently involved in criminal activity. I'm not deluded. I know this is going on. Some of you come to see me because of the message you've got yourselves into. And the world we're living in is a criminal world, but the Bible has answers for this. Much criminality is caused by different things. 
criminality is caused by seeing things on television, by poverty, trying to get out of poverty, sometimes caused by, as a reaction to your, to the way people treated you, and you're reacting as a result of the, the anger that was shown towards you, you're reacting in anger, lashing out. Sometimes it's addiction that results in, sometimes the addiction can drive people so much, obviously with heroin addiction, people are driven to crime to get the money to pay for their, for their habit. Many of you I know in this room have been in that situation where you didn't want to go down a criminal route, but you, the, the drive and the craving in your system for the heroin is so intense that you must get out and get your fix. Uh, okay, the Bible, his, his three verses from Proverbs, Proverbs 4, verses 14 to 17. It says, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they do evil. They are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and they drink the wine of violence. The Bible uses symbolism here, pictures of how for some people their sustenance, their food and their drink is violence. And literally that's, that's maybe the way some of you have been living. That literally you'd survive on doing wrong. It's almost, it sustains you. It gives you a buzz. It says in Proverbs eleven seventeen, 17, this is in contrast to Jesus who said, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. And that's an alternative. Actually, God does want you to have find fuel in purpose. But there's another purpose you can pursue. Instead of pursuing your own purpose, the purpose of this worldly way, you can pursue God's purpose and that energizes you like nothing else. Proverbs eleven seventeen. The merciful man does good, does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. As we as we quoted earlier, the people who are in, who are angry and who are embittered, they live shorter lives. But you live a godly life, serving God, living to please Him. You will live a longer life. You will do yourself good, not just in this life but eternally. Proverbs 21.7 says the violence of the wicked will drag them away because they refuse to act with justice. But you have to tell you that this corruption and this criminality also spreads into Christianity and into world religions. It's horrendous. So much stuff goes down in the name of God and God stands for nothing but justice. Yet people who are meant to represent him so often stand for criminality and evil. Uh, Just recently in the press in the last few years, uh, a, a man who, who was a great man, a good man, uh, Ted Haggard, a good pastor, a good leader, who made a, who made a great impact in his community in Colorado Springs. Uh, he had a weakness that was unchecked in his life, and it escalated into a point where in his private life he was living a double life. He, he was uh, having homosexual sex and, and pursuing homosexual relationships, And at the same time, he was leading his churches in marches against homosexuality and homosexual laws. That's ultimate hypocrisy in the name of a God who is against hypocrisy. Recently, a very famous church, I won't won't name it, it's a good church, but one particular leader in this uh, church, not in this country, in another part of the world, faked an illness and sang a song about his illness and talked about how God would heal him of this illness. And then and he faked it in front of his family and in front of his congregation and he released this album. <laughs> this is in the name of Christianity. Stuff goes down that gives God a bad name. And many of you have been put off Christianity because of more low-key examples of just numpties who in the name of Jesus are living r- stupid lives. I mean, historically in Edinburgh, Christians were to blame for the murdering of hundreds of witches. You know, they kind of, they looked at you funny and you thought, right, you're a witch. So they, they got burnt at the stake or drowned in ponds and typically driven by overzealous so-called Christians. All sorts of, in Rwanda, where Rwanda claimed to be 90% Christian, there was genocide in a nation that claimed to be 90% Christian. Many of those just now who are currently standing trial for war crimes are pastors. Pastors who... Uh, who invited people, come in here and we'll protect you. And then they would release the people over to the, the, the violent mob. Incredible stuff, horrendous stuff. Recently in Kenya, the tribal violence there. Uh, we've got a friend, a pastor friend there who's pioneering a church in Nakuru. 
Uh, he has many friends in Eldoret. That's where he was, he's from. And, I, uh, and myself and Liam visited there a couple of years ago. What was going on in the name of tribalism? It was like Christianity got shelved and tribalism took over. And my friend Patrick had a good friend who was a pastor. And he and his wife separated because they were from different tribes. Isn't that horrendous? That tribalism became more important in those heated moments than the kingdom of God. In the name of other religions, lots of horrendous things take place. Obviously, Islam is, is one that uh, has, has been given a very bad name because of fundamentalists, Muslims, who are on jihad and they believe it's the will of God that they kill people, which is obviously not the will of God. It's interesting that this is an important point. Some people say, well, fundamentalists are a problem. Well, I think being fundamental is a quality thing. It, it shows sincerity. It shows utter commitment to a cause. That is good. It becomes bad if the cause is a wicked cause. It becomes bad if you're deluded and you're committed to the wrong cause. You see, I would say Mother Teresa was a fundamentalist, but she was committed to a good cause. So this word fundamentalist actually isn't a negative word. It's just what it's associated with can make it negative or positive. And let me draw to your attention that a lot of the stuff that goes on in the name of Christianity, and people say, well, that's fundamentalist Christianity. It's actually not. It's actually not. It's, it's so far away from fundamentalist Christianity. See, to be a fundamental Christ, fundamentalist Christian, it means that you are trying to, with everything within you, trying to adhere and follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And if you look at the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and the way of Jesus, you would not be in any shape or form inspired to cause any harm to any other human being. In fact, you would be inspired to heal the sick, to speak words of life, to feed the, the hungry, to relieve poverty. You would be inspired to make a positive difference in this world if you were truly fundamentally following passionately in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. However, being a fundamentalist Muslim is a different thing. Being a fundamentalist Muslim is following closely in the footsteps of Muhammad. Now, Muhammad himself was a warrior. He was a warrior. He fought battles. So following in the footstep of a warrior, you will be a warrior. Following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, you will be a peacemaker. So the same word fundamentalist, but two different causes are entirely different. Now, I'm not saying that bad things haven't happened in the name of Christianity, but you cannot call that fundamentalist Christianity. That's nothing like Christianity, because it's nothing like Jesus. Hinduism uh, is the cause of many crimes in the world as well. The Hindu philosophy is that uh, it, it justifies a whole caste system where we have people who are the have-nots and you've got the haves. And apparently that's okay because the have-nots are just getting their karma from a previous life because they did negative things. Therefore, their lot in life is they are poor and that's the way they must stay because we cannot offend the will of karma. This is justifying poverty and accepting a situation that no one should accept. Every human being deserves a good quality of life. Every human being deserves food on the table. Every human being deserves treated with dignity and such like. But a religion has given excuse for the corruption in humankind to cause suffering on others. Recently, in, in the last two months, <clears throat> there's been intense persecution of Christians, specifically in the Orissa area of India where militant Hindus are literally trying to eradicate Christianity from Orissa. Now, Orissa is, India is such a huge uh, country to the point where actually every region is almost like a little country in itself. Uh, and it has laws, laws of its own, almost. And in Orissa, uh, it's 99.8% Hindu. So for the Christians who are in the vast majority uh, they're, they're hugely outnumbered and they're facing intense persecution. I got an email just a few days ago and this is, what, this is the summary of some of the things it said. It says, as per our estimate, in the last two months, there's been 10,000 Christian families have fled, this is in Orissa, have fled to the forests after the houses were burnt and they were attacked by rioters. Over 4,000 people have been injured and more than 20,000 20, houses have been burnt. In that email, it followed on with a list of some of the atrocities that have gone on. And in the email, it, it, you had to scroll through the email. There was 150 atrocities of missionaries being murdered, orphanages being burnt, uh, pastors and their whole families being uh, cut to pieces with, 
with swords. This is the world we're living in, and a lot of bad stuff goes down in the name of religion. Many people use that as their excuse to ignore God. Well, if uh, I don't want anything to do with religion, and therefore I don't want anything to do with God. But actually, you have to understand, God's not the problem. The common factor in all of these situations is human beings. That's where the problem lies. The problem doesn't lie with God. He's the answer. The problem does lie with human beings. This is why it's essential for there to be law. And the Bible talks about this. In Proverbs 17, 15, it says that he who justifies the wicked and who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. A God who is interested in justice when someone is perverting the course of justice and justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous, that offends God Almighty because he's interested in justice. Proverbs 18.5, to show partiality to the wicked is not good, nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. Proverbs 20.10, differing weights and differing measures, both of them are an abomination to the Lord. Kind of giving backhanders to try and get favors, you know, showing favoritism to one and ignoring justice. All these kind of things offend God because God is interested in justice. He's the answer to an unjust world. Now, we don't like laws, but they are essential. Laws restrict human behavior. There are different types of laws. There are written laws. There are laws of a country. Interestingly, uh, we're living in a fairly civilized country here, and there's a lot of positive things. And actually, when you analyze, for example, the, the ability for people to, when they're, when they're suffering, have free health care. Or when people are in old age, have state provision for them. All these things are phenomenal good qualities where the government, through the legal system and through the setup, is actually benefiting the population. And I have to say that many of these laws were based directly on the teachings of Jesus Christ. It has inspired a legal system specifically his teachings in Matthew 5, has inspired a legal system which enhances human life. And sure, it's not a perfect country, it's not a perfect legal system. Why? Because human beings are involved. Apart from written law, there is a law on the heart of every human being. This is one of the problems that atheists have. They have a difficulty with this whole concept that a human being can have a law written on the heart, but they know it is. You see, a true atheist who believes that everything was just a pure accident cannot justify this sense of right and wrong. Because to the pure atheist, it's, well, it's what you think is right is right and what I think is wrong is wrong. But yet everyone knows it's wrong to murder. And yet everyone knows it's wrong to cheat on your wife. Yet everyone knows it's wrong to lie. There are certain things that are crystal clear in the hearts of mankind. First of all, it proves the existence of a law-given God. Thank God. Because if, if he wasn't there, we'd be in trouble. And secondly, it, it gives us an awareness that we are accountable to such a God. God's solution for criminal behavior was Jesus Christ. Let me just say this. There are two types of people in this world. Only two. There's the wicked and there's the righteous. This may come as a shock to you. But there are very, very few righteous. And they're not sitting in this room. Everyone assumes the best about themselves. They always kind of brush over their own mistakes, but they're very good at highlighting other people's mistakes. But the Bible has a negative take on human race. You see, a big question is, are human beings fundamentally good or are human beings fundamentally corrupt? That's a big question. C.S. Lewis put it this way, Christianity has no message for those who do not realize they are sinners. If you think I'm fundamentally good, then good on you. First person I've ever met like that, but you don't need a savior and you might just get into heaven because you're so good. Wow, you risk it then. But if I'm being honest with myself, I realize I'm fundamentally corrupt. Okay, so you say, well, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so and such-and-such. Such. All right, let me just illustrate this. If, if I got your business card, right, and then I said to you, tell me the evilest person you can think of on planet Earth, and you'd say Adolf Hitler or something like that, so you write Adolf Hitler at the bottom of the credit card. 
And then I would say, tell me the most righteous person you can imagine on earth. And you say, well, Mother Teresa. That's always the truth the Jews. So write down Mother Teresa at the top there. Or, or Michael Zeus, or you know, someone of that kind of caliber at the top of the credit card. And then you say, okay, that's your little scale then. Um, Adolf Hitler, Mother Teresa, okay. Now, where are you in that scale? And say, okay. And most people would kind of put themselves uh, 60, 70% all the way up there. So you write your name down there. And then I would take you to the Wallace Monument and we'd put the little card at the base of the Wallace Monument. We'd go right to the top of the Wallace Monument and I would say, okay, up here, the card's right down at the base with Adolf Hitler on the grass. You a bit above it, and Mother Teresa up there, and we're at the top of the Wallace Monument. And we'd look down and I would say, okay, up here is God's standard that he would call righteousness. Now really, it's all relative. And good on you, you're above Adolf Hitler. But you ain't meeting the mark. And sin means you're missing the mark. This is what the Bible says. Just encourage, this would be a great memory verse. Not. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 19. It says there is none righteous, not even one. Listen, when I'm reading this, you're going to be sitting there, some of you, and you're going to be thinking, this is not true. Okay? Because the fact is, either what I'm about to read you is true, or it's not. And if, and the Bible, we believe, is the word of God. This, therefore, we believe, is God's take on us. It might not be our take on us. It's certainly not the popular take on us. You know, one of the reasons I believe that the Bible is inspired by God, right, is because no human being would come up with this list, right? We would say, oh, people are nice, and, you know, our Bibles would be rubbish Bibles, right? But here's what the real Bible says, and this is, according to God, his take on humankind. Your choice whether you believe it or not. There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, therefore have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, they keep, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under, whatever poison of asps is, is under their lips. The mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and the world may, be, may become accountable to God. <clears throat> That's a pretty s- strong take on humanity. But it's God's take on humanity. And do you know what? I, for one, I believe that. And when I read that, the world makes sense. And when I read that, my inner being makes sense. I'm a corrupt individual. I'm a corrupt individual. And don't look at me funny, you're worse. <laughs> you see, what happens is we live in our comfortable Western world where there's plenty of food on the table and where we've got everything we want and we've got home comforts and we turn the heating up when it gets cold um, 300 days of the year and we live in this comfortable Western world, okay? And we point our fingers at other people in other parts of the world who are, and there's so much violence and crime and stuff going down, right? <clears throat> but here's the thing. If I took you out of your little villa in Morningside and I plonked you in Ethiopia, then guess who would be scrabbling and fighting others for the food? Guess where your high moral values would go then? Guess where all your philosophies in life and so-called intellect would go? You become like an animal. You become like an animal. You see, your, your environment may restrict your humanity, but your humanity is still there. Some people might say, well, human beings have the potential to do evil. But the Bible would say that human beings, it's their inclination. It's not only they have potential to do evil, given the wrong set of circumstances, it is actually their default position. It is. When self-interest, you see, it's like, well, I'll be nice to you, but as soon as you cross me, I'll become a different animal. It's when self-interest kicks in that we show our true colors. Psalm 51 verse 5 says, surely, this is King David speaking, surely I was sinful at birth, 
sinful from the time my mother conceived me. See, the Bible here says that even from the point of birth, you are a sinner. Now, if you don't believe me, have kids. They're wicked little so-and-sos. The fact is, no parent teaches their kids to do evil. Yet every child, from the point of birth, does evil. Genesis 6 and verse 5 says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness had become on earth, and that every inclination of his thoughts of his hearts were only evil all the time. That's God's take on us. And you see, we, we say things like, well, it doesn't seem fair that God would judge humankind and send people to hell. Okay? Well, I guess we would argue the case, well, if someone committed a crime, should they go to prison? Yes, they should. All of us would agree with that. Okay? And how many people understand that most of the crimes people commit, they get away with, but then the ones they get caught for, they get judged for? But we would agree that it's fair that they get to jail to pay the price for the crime they've committed. That's based on human standards. But when it comes to God's standards, God's not just interested in the crimes that you physically commit and get caught for. God's looking at everything, every inclination of our heart. Jesus taught that the thought of adultery is is the very act of adultery in the sight of God. Jesus taught that the thought of murder, anger, and bitterness is actually in the sight of God. It is murder. So we understand, we agree that you should go to jail to pay the the, the price for a crime you've committed. And yet we also must understand that in the sight of God, it's not just our actions, it's also our intentions that God will judge us on. And here's the deal. If all of you had followed through with your intentions and your thoughts, you would be all, including myself, serving multiple life sentences already. Fact. Many of you, most of you would be rapists. Many of you, most of you would be murderers. Many of you, most of you would be thieves. And it would be a whole deal. We would be in prison. Fact. And that's just based on our thoughts. And that's the thoughts that we perceive. And God knows us through and through. Every day, we commit thousands of crimes against the Almighty with our actions, intentions, and mindsets. We are utterly, utterly destitute and corrupt in the sight of a holy God. There are wicked and there are righteous. And there is none righteous. We're wicked. And this is bad news. Because this wickedness will send us to hell. And it's just. It is totally, 100% just. God is just. And God will judge vehemently our sin. But that's why he sent the Savior. Right? Do you think I'm telling you this stuff because I like saying this stuff? Do you think I'm saying, I know, I'll make them all feel bad. I'll do a popular sermon. Right? It's not what I like talking about. But it's what I need to talk about. Because it's true. And Jesus Christ came into this world. He was born of a virgin without sin. He lived a life without sin. And at the end of his life, when he stood before Pilate, Pilate was trying to get out of this man's crucifixion. Pilate knew that he was guiltless. Pilate was kind of at the point where he didn't, he didn't know how to deal with this guy. Because he was a guy who was totally unintimidated by the situation he was facing. He was a guy who was, all his accusers were asking and calling for his death, yet he just stood there silently. He was a guy, Pilate had never seen this before. I mean, this, this is not a man acting like a man. This is a man who was innocent. You could see in his eyes, pure, sinless. And yet they were calling for his crucifixion and he didn't want anything to do with it. Furthermore, Pilate, in that moment, his wife had a dream the night before about Jesus. And she came to Pilate and says, have nothing to do with this man. There was this righteous man. Pilate was shaken up. He knew that he was dealing with a human being that he'd never dealt with before because this is the first human being in whom there was no corruption. And trying to get out of, he knew that to, to, com, to condemn him to death and by crucifixion would be a horrendous crime. So he was trying to find ways out of it. So every year at the, at the Passover feasts, it was their custom to release a prisoner to the Jews as an act of goodwill to the Jewish people. And he remembered and he thought, ah, this is my way out. So what he did was this. He didn't just choose a guy who'd been caught for stealing like someone's sheep, right? 
he chose the most violent, vile, corrupt criminal that was in the Roman jail at that time. He chose Barabbas. A man who was violent, a man who had caused insurrection in the city, a man who was a murderer, a man who the Jewish people would not like either. And he said, and he thought, this is my way of releasing Jesus, the one who is innocent. And he put Barabbas and Jesus before the crowds. And he said, do you want the king of the Jews? Or do you want this vile criminal Barabbas? And they cried for Barabbas. And then they said, well, what will I do with this one who you call your king? And they shouted, crucify him. You see, this is a strong symbolism of what Jesus came to do. He came to die on a cross on behalf of a corrupt world. He took the place of Barabbas. The crime that Barabbas had committed and the penalty that Barabbas deserved, Jesus Christ took. The sin that we had committed, the price that we should have paid, my Savior paid the price for me on the cross. I was a vile, into myself, individual who didn't want anything to do with God. And when I even didn't ask him, my Savior died for me on the cross. He shed his blood, the sinless one, for me, the sinner. And this is incredibly good news. It's not good news if you think, I'm a good person, I don't need to hear this message. Why have you brought me to church tonight? But if you realize that God's take on you is accurate, that you are a sinner, you are vile in the sight of God, although he loves you. It's like this world. It's so beautiful, yet it's so corrupt. God, in the sight of God, you are amazing. He loves you. He's always loved you. And it's because of that love that he sent Jesus. Because he couldn't let the corruptness that was in you take you where it would, hell. So he had to send an answer. So if you're here and you realize, man, I am a sinner. I thank you, God, for the Savior. Then this is your lifeline. Jesus died on the cross for you. There was a man who bought a Rolls Royce. <clears throat> he, was, he decided he would go for a run in his Rolls Royce and he was going to go across into the continent and tour Europe in his Rolls Royce. He got over there. He was having a wonderful time touring on the autobahns and enjoying Europe in his Rolls Royce. He was loving this car. And then it crashed. It, no, it didn't crash. It broke down. He pulled over to the side of the roads and he phoned Rolls Royce. And, and they said, wait there, we'll send someone to be with you. They sent a helicopter with a mechanic in it. They arrived, they hired him another car to enjoy the rest of his journey, and they dealt with the Rolls Royce. When he got back from his holiday, the Rolls Royce was sitting in his drive waiting for him. And he thought to himself, I wonder what on earth the bill for this repair is going to be. <laughs> it's kind of a major issue. They had to fly a mechanic over and all this. So anyway, months went past. No bill came through the door. Eventually, he said, right, I'm going to have to write to them. I, 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 I don't want to get caught short here and get this huge thousand-pound bill through the door. So he writes to them and says, you, you came, you repaired my Rolls-Royce, and uh, I'm wondering how much it costs. And Rolls-Royce replied in, uh, to, to his letter and said, we have no record anywhere that ever did a Rolls-Royce ever break down. <laughs> their reputation. But you understand that when you come to God and you commit your life to him, God who loves you so much, he places your sin, your guilt, your corruption on the Savior who died for you on the cross. And in exchange, you take his forgiveness, his purity. You acquire spiritual, moral innocence in the sight of a God who is holy. You become righteous, holy, in the sight of God because of the Savior. That's amazing. This is a lifeline. And Jesus rose again and he's alive to give you this righteousness and this holiness. That is the ultimate solution for criminality. That is the ultimate solution for corruption, that you deal with the heart of the issue. But furthermore, there are also practical solutions to criminality. First of all, don't hang out with criminals. This will help reduce criminality. Proverbs 13, 20, he who walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. You spend time with criminals, you will end up being criminal. How many people, understand, how many people know that? All right. My dear friend, who's here tonight, and I won't tell you who he is, had a criminal past. And recently, his friend came to him, his friend came to him, 
and said, I'll give you 50,000 pounds if you just come and do a job for us. It's a security job. You just have to do use some of your surveillance techniques and uh, how about it? It's the kind of friend you don't want to hang out with. Thankfully, my friend who's in this church, sitting in this room just now, smiling and pretending, don't let anyone look at me, <laughs> said no, because he chose to follow Jesus Christ. But the thing is, I don't care, if, if, if you, if, even if you're the strongest believer, you hang out with people who are going the wrong way in life, it will dramatically affect you. <clears throat> so the friend I'm talking about here has had to kind of back off from certain friendships because he knows his vulnerability, like 50,000 pounds is a bit of a vulnerability. The Reader's Digest, one writer studied the Amish people in preparation for an article that he was writing on the Amish people. And in observation of school kids who were Amish school kids growing up uh, and going to school, he noted that the children never screamed or yelled. And he was amazed at this. And he spoke to the head teacher of the school and said, how is it that none of the, he's not ever heard an Amish child screaming and yelling? And the schoolmaster said to them, well, have you ever heard an Amish adult screaming or yelling? Because you see, you learn behavior. And you want to restrict corrupt behavior? You've got to restrict who you expose your life to. It says in Proverbs 22, 24 to 25, do not make friends with a hot-tempered man do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. Don't hang out with people who are flipping off the hook all the time and who are ragy at everything. Individuals like that will make you ragy. It will damage you. Here's another practical solution to criminal activity. Intervene when you can. Intervene when you can. The Bible gives this concept of peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. For they sh- theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus encouraged peacemaking. He didn't say blessed are the peacekeepers. You know, you know what peacekeeping is? It's when you're in your house and <clears throat> you don't dare raise the issues because you know it will result in a big argument. So you just try and keep the peace. Basically what you're doing is you're brushing the issues under the carpet and you're not tackling the issues. So I'll just keep the peace. Just, I'm not, it's like treading on eggshells. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. He said blessed are the peacemakers. And sometimes to make peace it's like you need a bit of a thunderstorm sometimes before the cam. You need to clear the air. Sometimes you just got to tackle the issues head on. UN sent out peacekeepers to former Yugoslavia. And during some of the time when some of the greatest atrocities were taking place, the UN peacekeepers were just standing back. They were trying to keep the peace, but they weren't interventionists. They were seeing the most horrendous crimes taking place in front of them, but their hands were tied. Peacemaker... It's what God insists that we are. We should be interventionists, getting involved, doing what we can when we can. BBC website, in, uh, just in this last month, uh, they had an article about the Britain's approach to crime. And this is what they said, that Britons have become passive bystanders in the fight against crime. It says that the UK has the world's most expensive justice system, but people abdicate responsibilities and say it's the politicians, the police, and the court's responsibility to deal with crime. When interviewed, British people were the least likely people to intervene if they saw a crime taking place compared to other European counterparts. And how many people have seen that? Things happening in our city, bad things taking place, and people are just standing back. Now you've got to be wise, you've got to not get too involved with certain issues, but there's also time to speak up. Proverbs 31, 8 to 9 says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. I was talking this morning about Mike. Mike <coughs> stood up for his, for his Polish friends in his workplace, uh, but his Polish friends didn't speak English. So, so Mike spoke to the English-speaking boss about the fact how the English-speaking boss wasn't paying his, his Polish comrades. He said, this is wrong. As a result, Mike lost his job. Mike, Mike, Mike needed to intervene on behalf of friends. But recently his friends came back to him and said, no, listen, we want to take matters into our own hands. And Mike said, no, no, no. Now you need to not do this. But Mike's also got to now be careful that he doesn't get too embroiled and too involved in the situation that he now gets caught up in someone else's argument. 
And this is also a balance. Be an interventionist, but also don't get so caught up in people's personal situations. It says in Proverbs twenty six seventeen, like one who takes the dog by the ears is one who, one who passes by and meddles with strife that does not belong to him. Okay, so know when you've got to intervene and know when it's not your fight. Be wise. His solution to criminality and violence and corruption, radical pacifism. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you've heard that it is said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you in the right cheek, turn to him, the other also. The Jewish law, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, was there to try and curb violence. It was there to try and restrict retribution. Because if that law hadn't been there, then people would have got hit, one eye plucked out, and they'd have just gone at the guy and killed the guy. Rather than mellowing, it was, it was an attempt to curb excessive violence in a, in a corrupt environment. But Jesus went further and says, I tell you, if someone strikes you in the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Many people have seen this as a kind of, well, you become a Christian, you become a walkover. That's not what was going on here. I have two volunteers. I have to warn you, in this, uh, this may get violent, okay? Two volunteers. <laughs> All the guys, hey, bring me on. All right, thank you, sir, and uh, thank you, sir. Come on, let's hear for their volunteers. Yeah. Okay, guys, you all right? Can we go home from church tonight with a black eye? Well, that's okay. How was church on here? Brilliant. Okay, Jesus says, if someone hits you in the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay? In Jesus' time, uh, in Jesus' Jewish culture, people had two hands. And uh, you have to understand that, and very similar to our culture in that respect. And like in our culture, they had a left hand and they had a right hand. <clears throat> so, now, in the Jewish culture, they had a, a right hand. Put your hand, right hands up, guys. In the Jewish culture, your right hands, uh, it was highly symbolic. For example, in the Bible, it talks about at the right hand of God. The right hand always inferred blessing. You, you confer a blessing to the firstborn with your right hand. Uh, equally with your right hand, that was, that was what, uh, it, you were creative, you were, it was your strength. With your right hand, you would eat. It was considered your clean hands, okay? Thank you, guys. And you also had a left hand. And this is remarkably like today's world. Is, lift your left hands, guys. Now, your left hand was considered your unclean hands. So you did certain things with this hand. Before toilet paper was around and you needed to clean your, well, you had to general maintenance of certain parts of your body just to keep things flowing and you had a left hand. Now, in the Jewish culture, if you were going to hit someone with your left hand, you were saying to them, if you were hitting them with your unclean hand, you were saying to them, you're nobody. You are less than me. In the Jewish culture, if you hit someone with your right hand, you were considering them an equal, but you just had an issue with them. For example, a Roman fighting a Roman would fight right hand to right hand. But if a Roman was coming to a Jew, he would slap him with his left hand as a mark of, you're a nobody. You're less than me. I disrespect you. This was a way of putting someone down, using your unclean hands to put them down. A Jewish master would hit his slave with his left hand because he was treating him with disdain. Jesus said, thanks guys, this is where it gets violent. Jesus said, if anyone hits you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, your right cheek, it's your right cheek. You go and hit him with your right cheek. How, how are you going to do it? You hit his right cheek. How are you going to do it? Yeah, you're going to use your left hand. Jesus said, if someone hits you, oh. right? You all right? Yeah, yeah. Dude, come on, man. Kill it. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Okay, if someone hits you with a, on the right cheek, Jesus said, turn to the other side. What's happened? If you get hit in your right cheek, what's hand's been used? I mean, unless you do a fancy kind of kung fu 
backhander, right? Typically, it's going to be your left hand, right? And Jesus said, if someone hits you this way, they're saying you're a nobody. You're less than me. You're not really worth anything. Jesus said, turn to the other also. Now, that's not so easy. So it forces the other hand. And by saying this, Jesus was actually making a radical statement that actually what you do is you turn the other cheek and that forces the guy to use his other hands. And if he chooses then to use his other hands, it forces him to acknowledge, you're my equal. Because all human beings are equal. Thank you very much, guys. Jesus Christ was not a walkover. He wasn't a kind of blessing people. And Jesus was a carpenter. He was a working class man. He worked on building sites, right? That kind of guy on building sites. Doesn't last very long. You understand, Jesus wasn't a walkover. He was buff. He was courageous. He was unintimidated. He wasn't overbearing. He was loving. He was gentle. But he was strong when he needed to be. Jesus Christ was the ultimate man. Jesus was not saying, become a walkover when you become a Christian. He was saying, just do not accept being put down. I know. I know. (laughs) Oh, look, I've got lots of time. Told you it wouldn't work. Told you it wouldn't work. Uh, J- Jesus Christ, See, that's, that's, tell me 10 minutes gone already? I cannot believe that. <laughs> 10 minutes, man. Seemed like 50. Anyway, Jesus was not a walkover, and he's not encouraging any human being to be a walkover. He's saying, you know you've got rights. Don't be a walkover. But exercise radical pacifism. Martin Luther King Jr. was an awesome example of this. Martin Luther King Jr., that was not a faint-hearted man. This was not a weak man. This was a man who believed in certain stuff. This is a man who had convictions and courage. This is a man who was willing to stand up for truth, even at danger of his own life. Amazing. And Martin Luther King Jr. said this, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Romans 12, 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God encourages us to have radical pacifism. I'm getting to the close now. Do not retaliate. When you, when you personally experience corruption in this world and violence maybe towards you, do not retaliate. Do not retaliate. Romans 12, 8 to 20, 18 to 20 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> He's a burger. Right? God isn't kind of come up with some backhanded, sadistic way of undermining someone. What God's saying here is this. As you treat with dignity and respect even someone who considers you their enemy, as you love them even though they showed you no love, then if they persist in their evil then it's just going to be to their own judgment. But hopefully it will melt their heart and win them over. But listen, who are we to judge? Only one, the only one who's, I mean, if if it's true that there is no one righteous, then who on earth are we to judge? The only one who can fairly and squarely judge is Jesus Christ. And the Bible says he will judge. He will come and he will judge the earth. We, must, we stand or fall before him. So do not retaliate. Trust God. Trust God. Lots of, this is an unjust world. Bad things happen to good people. This is a wicked world. It's an imperfect world. But trust God. God is just. God can vindicate. God can back you up. Don't take matters into your own hands. Do what you can do, yes. But do not try and re- retribution. Do not try and get vengeance. Trust God. And do your best to bless and to be a blessing to those people. Matthew five forty four, Jesus said, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's one real good way to mess with their heads. 
Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That is radical. That is incredible. And this is a good answer to the world. Finally, I want to encourage you to forgive. If you have been a victim of corruption in this world, forgive. Right? The fact is, and I know many of you here are carrying major hurts. You feel you have been unjustly treated. And it's true. You maybe still feel that you're continually, even, even this week you anticipate it, you're being untrust, un, unjustly treated. And this may be the case. But here's the thing. If it's them doing it to you, it's their problem. But as soon as you become bitter, aggressive, vengeful, angry, unforgiving, their problem now becomes your problem. God's response to a corrupt world was to offer it forgiveness. The only, only way to get on in this world is to offer forgiveness. So you must forgive. You must forgive. Rick Warren says, if you do not forgive those who have hurt you, you'll begin to resemble them. You become the very thing you don't like. Why is alcoholic dads breed alcoholic kids? Lack of forgiveness. The cycle wasn't broken. Why is it dads who abuse their kids and are physically violent with them, those same kids grow up to be physically violent dads who are physically violent to their kids? Why? <clears throat> because the cycle continues. There wasn't forgiveness exercised. You need to forgive. You need to release. Now see, when you forgive someone, it is not you saying that what you did was okay. Because some of you don't want to forgive because you think, if I say I forgive you, it's almost letting them off the hook. It's not letting them off the hook. It doesn't make it right or wrong in the sight of God if you forgive someone. They still have to answer to God for their crime. All it means is this, that no longer has that got a hold in my life. I forgive you. And you know what? Some of you think you can only forgive when being asked for forgiveness. When they're coming on their knees and begging you for forgiveness, then you will grant forgiveness. No, no. Jesus, as he was hanging on the cross for the sins of a corrupt world, the world, it wasn't like when we put him on the cross, we were saying, oh, what, what on earth have we done wrong? No, no. While Jesus was still on the cross, they were still hurling insults, still throwing criticisms, still spitting at him and cursing him. And as he was hanging on that cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Without them coming and asking forgiveness, Jesus offered forgiveness. Stephen, the first martyr in the early church, as he was being stoned to death, in front of those who were killing him, he said, Father, do not hold this crime against them. And it was that prayer that saved the Apostle Paul who went on to become one of the greatest Christian missionaries in the early church. Forgive, forgive, release them. And you might emotionally feel a million miles away from offering any forgiveness. You might not feel emotionally, I don't want to forgive them. Sure. Well, just make a decision to forgive. Just to grit your teeth and just say the words, I forgive you. And tomorrow, I forgave them. And the next day, I've still forgiven them. And you won't feel happy about it. But don't let your emotions ruin your life. Your emotions are all over the place. Rein them in. Make a decision based on truth and let your emotions catch up. They will catch up. What happened overnight takes time. But you live in truth. They will catch up. And you will not become the person you don't want to become. Bitter, twisted, inward-looking, and neutralized. Unforgiveness will eat you up on the inside. Furthermore, all unforgiveness will create a blockage between you and God. Jesus, in that famous prayer, said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. God, would you forgive us our sins just as we are now forgiving those who have sinned against us? And at the end of that prayer, Jesus said, for if you do not forgive other people those sins against you, neither will your Father forgive you your sins. When you realize the magnitude of your problem and of my problem, if you realize the magnitude of how much you've been forgiven from, it's, and you, it's not going to be that hard for you to offer someone else forgiveness. When you realize how much you've been forgiven from, who are we to hold back forgiveness from others? when God hasn't held back forgiveness from us. Let's show others the mercy that God has shown us. 
So we're living in a world, it's a beautiful world, it's an awesome world. We are awesome, beautiful, beautiful people created in the image of a God who loves us more than you will ever know. But nevertheless, there's an ugliness in our lives and in this world. Sin, corruption, it causes suffering, it causes ruin. It's caused your life to be damaged and hurt. But our answer is Jesus Christ, the one who died for us and rose again. And the way we walk in that answer is by living in relationship with him and offering forgiveness to a world that doesn't deserve it, just as we didn't. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you that you are just and you are true. We thank you, God, that in a world so full of uh, corruption, and we're, we're recognizing, God, that's not just the world around us, that's in our lives as well. God, we recognize, God, that you're a God of incredible mercy. And God, it's because of your love that you haven't already judged this world. It's because of your love that you haven't just said, right, I'm just going to wipe them all out. It's because of your love, because you long for people to come to you, that you have held back and you've continued to wait, giving people the opportunity to get connected again with you, to turn from their ways and to start to follow the true and living God. God, this is a hard subject, but nevertheless, it's a subject that's real and it's a subject that your Bible does not ignore. God, we want to walk with you. We want to walk in your forgiveness. We want to offer hope to a world that's so hurting and broken. We want to speak out for those who cannot speak out for themselves. We don't want to meddle in other people's business, but we nevertheless, we want to be peacemakers, intervening where necessary. We want to be radical pacifists who get our sleeves rolled up and do everything we can to make our world a better place and stand for equality and justice and truth. And God, we want to be those who offer mercy and forgiveness just as you have offered it to us. Okay, just take a moment to make your response to God. It might be tonight that there are some of you here tonight, and I'm certain this is the case, and you've heard the bad news. You've heard that we're wicked, we're sinners, and that we're distant from God. And you know the truth of it. And tonight, your only hope your only hope is not becoming a better person. It's not becoming religious. Your only hope is Jesus Christ, the one who died for you in the cross and rose again. He died so you could be forgiven. He rose so you could have eternal life and live a full, strong life on earth. So come to him tonight. Don't hold back. Come to him. Commit your life to him. and Choose to follow him from this day forward. If that's you, and that's what you want to do, and that's the decision you want to make, then I'm going to give you an opportunity right now to do that. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer, and I invite you to pray this prayer with me. If you're willing to commit your life to God, ask his forgiveness, and turn your life over to following him from the rest of your days, then you pray this prayer with me quietly under your breath. Pray this with me now. Repeat it after me. Pray, dear Lord God, you're a just and awesome, wonderful God. God, I realize that I'm a fallen human being. I am corrupt to the core of my being. And God, I realize that I desperately need your forgiveness and your salvation. God, please forgive me. Jesus, I believe you died for the very purpose and you rose again for the very purpose of forgiving and saving me. I believe in you, Jesus Christ. Thank you for forgiving me. I believe that you're alive right now, Lord Jesus Christ. And right now, I put you first in my life. I commit to following you from this day forward. Thanks, God, for hearing my prayer. Thank you for accepting me tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, keep your eyes closed. If anyone prayed that prayer, you've just done a great thing. If you prayed that prayer and made that commitment before God, you have done a great thing. And I have to say that God has heard your prayer. I would love the privilege of praying for you. I'm going to ask you to do a simple thing. If you prayed that prayer, I want to know who I'm praying for. I want to ask God to bless you as you embark on this new life with him. I'm not going to call you to the front or embarrass you in any way. 
but just simply where you are, if you pray that prayer, could you identify yourself to me by raising your hands and then putting it down again? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? You made that commitment. You prayed that prayer. Quickly put your hand up. Thank you. Okay, God, thanks for these friends tonight who have made this decision before you. I know that you've heard their prayer. And I know as they've asked for forgiveness, God, it's your delight and your passion to forgive them in this very moment. I ask God that you'd help them now to live for you, fill them with the power of your Holy Spirit. God, help each one of them to get involved in a good church, in this church or in another good church, where they can grow in their faith and move forward into the life you have for them. God, thank you that you are for them. Thank you that you've got a great plan and purpose for them. Help them now to walk with you and serve you all the days of their life. Thank you you've accepted them. Thank you as they've put their faith in you, they now have eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Let's stand to our feet. We're going to worship.